Hello and welcome to 15 Minute Medicine, where we try to make medicine as simple as possible, but not simpler than that. I am one of your co-hosts for today, Farai Chukumadzi, and I'm joined by my two fellow co-hosts, Efoso Ohanba and Nick Mutanda. Farai, How's everyone doing? I'm doing all right. How are you guys doing? Hi guys, you're doing good. It's just cold up in the streets, but otherwise no complaints. Cozy times as usual. Very yourself, cold. Farai, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Thank you for asking. Don't normally ask the person who started off how they're doing, but I'm good. I'm on leave. It's just given me lots of time to prepare for this episode. Does anyone want to tell everyone what we are talking about today? So today we'll be talking about do doctors sleep enough? And I think it's a very important topic, controversial, one would say, and I think something that needs to be addressed and definitely put in the forefront of our minds and out in the public sphere for discussion. So first of all, do you guys, do you remember a bit of physiology from med school? I'm going to ask you a few questions and let's see how far you, how far we can get. So Nick, what is the hormone that is in charge of sleep? Why do I want to say melatonin? Is it melatonin? Yeah. Yep. And what is it secreted by? Oh, nah, pause. <laughs> if also. Yeah, this is going way back. But if I remember correctly, I think it's secreted by the pineal gland. By the way, this is not scripted. If also is just a genius. Well done to Nick for also getting that right. But yes, it That's is right. secreted by the pineal gland, which is under the control of the suprachiasmatic nucleus. To take a step further back, if we look at the way that sleep is governed, there's two main processes. And this is the circadian rhythm. I don't know if you guys have heard about that. That's like your internal biological clock, which works with your suprachiasmatic nucleus, as well as a process you can kind of say is sleep pressure. So the circadian rhythm, you know how every day has 24 hours roughly. Our bodies also have like an internal clock, which is not exactly 24 hours, but studies show that it's about 24 hours and 15 minutes. It governs things like your sleep-wake cycles, your core body temperatures, and hormonal patterns. Then you have your sleep pressure, where you have inside of your body, you have adenosine, which is being secreted. And essentially, as you're awake, your adenosine levels continually increase. And this builds up pressure all the way until you finally have too much adenosine in your body, as well as linking up with your, your natural circadian rhythm and then you naturally feel sleepy. A bit of trivia for you, or a fun fact, is that the way that caffeine works is that caffeine blocks your adenosine receptors and stops adenosine from working. So that's basically the way that caffeine stops people from falling asleep. So the next part of this physiology, or just general knowledge about sleep, is why is sleep important? I'm going to take a stab at it, trying to use as little to no medical terminology as I possibly can. But the way I understand why sleep is important is it allows you to build and maintain memory. So what I mean by that is if I go and read a chapter of a book or I read a chapter of a textbook or read up on a specific topic, my sleeping that night actually compounds that knowledge and helps with my memory with regards to what I've learned or studied. I mean, other than obviously needing sleep to survive, if you've had to bring it close to home and speak about learning, I understand that sleep is being that cooling off period that lets your body and your brain cement the knowledge that you've learned. So we actually had a lecturer in first year who scared me so much. I don't know if also if you remember. And he taught us embryology and he told us the story about this boy who like kept failing and the person was pulling all these all-nighters and it didn't make sense that he kept failing and eventually he spoke to this boy as he was about to fail and he was like dude you need to start sleeping or else you're not going to improve and essentially according to the lecture this provided a miracle and he started doing exceptionally well and never failed again after that 
I don't know how true it is, but it definitely scared me. And ever since then, that has stopped me from ever reaching the point where I'm going to like do an all-nighter. I'm not sure if I remember that story, but maybe subconsciously I did throughout med school, hence why I slept in lectures so much. But Yeah, Nick, you probably don't know that, but Reforza was always, always sleeping. So that also explains why he has a lot of knowledge stored up. I stand behind it. I only caught onto the whole sleeping thing very late in my academics. So one thing that you said now is uh, um, just definitely true is about the role that sleep has in building up memory. To get to that point, I'm just going to also hammer down on the fact that when you look at sleep, you have your two phases of sleep, as you all know. You have your non-REM sleep and your REM sleep. Non-REM sleep is consisting of four stages, one and two, which are superficial, and three and four, which is deep. The non-REM phase of sleep is basically, you can look at it as the way that the brain is weeding out all the nonsense and the memories that you don't need during the day. Whereas your REM or REM sleep is important for building memory as well as creativity. This is the time when you're dreaming during your sleep. The two cycles go through cycles. Together there, each cycle is 90 minutes of, of non-REM sleep and REM sleep. And you first go through your non-REM sleep, four stages, and then you go to your REM sleep. Initially, your REM sleep is very short, the initial phase. But as you start building up more and more phases, after the first phase, after the second phase, third phase, going on and on and on, then your REM sleep starts to, like the window of time that you experiencing REM sleep starts to build up. So that's why it's important to get consistent sleep instead of just getting like 90 minutes of sleep here, 90 minutes of sleep there. It's important that you like have at least eight to nine hours of sleep each night so that you can have a stored up or build up REM sleep. But both phases have their importance. Basically like continuous sleep, like not interrupted. Yes, exactly. I think that's also a factor in terms of sleeping on call because it will be interrupted at some point. The foursome. Why else is it important that we sleep? So I think it's also important for, well, if you're exercising regularly, recovery of muscles, for your reproductive system, your immune system. I read recently in an article about how your natural killer cell function is diminished after one single night of diminished sleep or sleep less than four to five hours. So if you're sleepy, I mean, if you're like sleep deprived, you're more likely to get sick. And I think in the current times we're living in, that's also an important factor, you know, just about immunity. Exactly. So now moving on to doctors more specifically, how much sleep do you guys get on a typical night when you're not on call? So me personally, I get anywhere between six to eight hours on a weekday and usually i strive for eight hours plus on the weekends that's when i'm mm. not on call obviously so what, what time do you go to sleep what time do you wake up so like i said i only caught it onto this whole sleep thing late into my academic career so i'm trying to catch up here but generally i'm aiming to be in bed by about nine o'clock half past nine and have like a winding down or settling in period this is like during the week hopefully to be asleep not too long after 10. And then on a weekend, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I just try to get to bed before midnight and then, you know, I wake up when the spirit leads me. <laughs> okay, Nick. Eforso? <laughs> I'm kind of on the just below the lower end of recommended. So on average, about six and a half to seven on a normal day when I'm not on call. About seven to eight on weekends. Can I ask, when you say with that amount of time that you're sleeping, what time do you get to bed? So on average between 10, 13, 11, and then up around half five. And do you guys ever struggle to wake up? I've never struggled to wake up in the sense of I've never missed an alarm, you could say. I don't usually struggle to wake up. In terms of actually getting up, that's a different story. Like sometimes it's a bit, some mornings are a bit tougher but to actually be awake, no. And would you consider yourself a morning person or a night person? I think that has changed over the years because I'd say before like, like med school, I'd say I was definitely like 100% a morning person. But then 
during med school there were some unwarranted you know late nights and things like that so now i'm kind of mixed but i'm still more predominantly yeah. morning person than than a night person i still also don't believe in like all nighters and stuff like that so very rarely did i pull all nighters except for desperate times a few occasions desperate times go for desperate measures yeah so in general when you look at doctors the vast majority of doctors sleep between six and seven hours on average. Now, when you take calls into consideration, that can range from anything. For me, when I look at a good call, I would say like I got three hours of sleep, but there's been times obviously, which everyone has experienced where you get no, like no sleep at all. And you're just feeling so drained after that, which is actually like, if you speak to people that aren't in the medical profession, they would think that you're absolutely crazy. But in our line of work, it's something that has been normalized. There's a bit of history behind that as well. Has anyone ever heard of William Halstead? It's a no from me. Uh, Well, I just recently saw an article. He was one of the four founding physicians of John Hopkins. John's Mm -hmm. Hopkins. So he's a surgeon, a renowned surgeon in the U.S. in the late 19th century early 20th i heard he had a bit of a cocaine vice yep he had a bit of a cocaine habit which at the time was actually quite normalized except to the latter part of his career where they were starting to realize the bad side effects of cocaine however doctors were still able to prescribe it and him being a doctor he could still self-medicate which he did quite often as you said he's one of the four founding fathers of the john hopkins university he was a really good surgeon he's been attributed with us actually using using gloves when you're doing surgery he also has been accredited with pioneering the technique for the radical mastectomy but yeah he was quite strict on his trainee surgeons and he would want them to be at work 362 days of the year as the forces said, he had a bit of a cocaine habit. So it makes a bit of sense that he was able to continue working so hard. So he was like doing his research, being a surgeon, teaching people. He was brilliant, but it was unnatural what he did. And he actually passed away at quite an early age. So yeah, we have Mr. or Dr. William Halstead to thank for the fact that we are expected to be on call at very strange hours. and often although not as often as they used to be but yeah he's led to a tradition of madness sure that's that's intense when you think about it because we now of course are not using these illicit substances and we are expected to carry out maybe not exactly the same amount of hours of after hours work basically but we're still expected to carry out what would, what to normal people would seem like crazy, crazy hours. We go for stretches of time without sleep and without cocaine. <laughs> so is the natural solution that we should just reintroduce cocaine and then we can get back to it? To a certain extent, okay, I don't think cocaine is the answer, but in a way, a lot of doctors are already kind of trying to find something to you know keep them going and to a certain extent we found that in caffeine i know myself and many of my colleagues start the day with a cup of coffee i don't know about you guys caffeine some people on a a rough call you'll add red bull or a monster or a play yeah so it just varies or all of them exactly so in a if you think about like a class of drug you know we're still kind of dependent on stimulants which yeah you know which caffeine is how many times have you guys made a mistake on call it's a hard one yo make that's a (laughs) self-introspection on a hundred there (laughs) but i guess if I may jump in and sort of try and get hopefully my mistakes forgotten by the listeners, I guess a mistake depends on if you're saying a mistake with regards to patient management, with regards to self-care, that type of thing. So I wouldn't say that I personally frequently make mistakes on call, but I must say that I've only ever had one needle prick injury 
in my entire medical history. So that's from being a student until being a medical doctor. So that one incident came when I was very, very, very sleep deprived on a specific call. So mistake that I know of, I would go and say the one mistake that I don't know of, probably will never know because my shift ended and it became someone else's problem. That's true. You're gone then. So I had a situation where I was doing a, a pediatrics call and it was just terrible. Like I was beyond defeated. I did not get a wink of sleep at all. And finally the daylight had come to save me. So as I was going, there was um, a baby born to uh, HIV exposed baby that was born by normal vaginal delivery. So I just went to go prescribe um, the um, the post-exposure prophylaxis for the child. And I quickly did it. And I went home and I just like collapsed. I wake up at 12 and the person who was taking over, who was on the late shift, I was on the call on Saturday and he took over on the Sunday, sent me a picture of the script. And the amount of, I think it was the Dovidine or something that I had written was like, it was basically, this was a newborn and I'd given the amount that you'd give a child that's like three years old or something, which is like 10 times the dose that was supposed to be given. And I was just so embarrassed. But like looking back and even like as I put myself back where I was, like just trying to think of how exhausted I was, there was like, I didn't know if there was any other way of like getting past that situation. Because when you're just that tired, all you're trying to do is like leave the hospital. And I was even looking, yeah. I was looking at game guidance. So it was all right there in front of me. But I guess my mind was playing tricks on me. And it was just like, write something down because you need to leave the hospital right now. Mm. Yeah, peds ones usually make mistakes in multiples of 10. <laughs> For me, it's usually like a thing of like forgetting to like hand over something. Then I'll like randomly remember like when I'm already home and then I'll quickly call like whoever's currently then just remind them, hey, quickly, please do this for me. I forgot to do this. But nothing like major that I can remember offhand. But it's normally something that, oh, I just forgot to do this or add this to the thing. But then normally there's a, a fail safe and that someone is there who can maybe remedy that. Okay. At least they, like you said, it's important to have fail safe mechanisms in place so even if it's during the day at least there's someone who's covering your back i think we're gonna um build up on that just now so let's get into the actual crux of this right now we've spoken about how much we do sleep and um on call and and not on call do you guys feel like you get enough sleep as a doctor and in general when you look at seniors other doctors do you think that they get enough sleep me personally i'm going to go ahead and say no we don't get enough sleep on call and that can be for a number of reasons you know from busyness to how many people are on a specific shift and when it comes to my seniors us being at the bottom of the food chain and in, in, in regards to how long we've been in the in the profession i think definitely if I, as the bottom of the food chain, am not getting enough sleep on call, then there's no way that my senior is getting enough sleep on call because they're effectively responsible for me with a pinch of salt, obviously. But I mean, I don't think that I'm getting, that we get anywhere close to enough sleep on call. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Definitely not. Like I think to a certain extent, like medical officers, comms, MOs, um, I said animals already. And registrars especially, I think, really bear the brand of, well, that's a resident equivalent if you're listening from the US or elsewhere. I really don't think they, we, we get enough sleep at all. But particularly regis, like I was just thinking like in surgery, like a reg would start a call. Sometimes the interns would have staggered like times of starting. So there'd be like a mini pre-call, even though the call would still be a full 24 hours. They'll do the call in between admitting patients, going to theater, sometimes even post-call, still taking patients to theater, leaving like 30 hours later after starting the call. 
coming back like literally the next day for like a full theater day like just as an example now that's like when i think about that i'm just like yo some people just go through the most so yeah i definitely don't think we get enough and our seniors i think consultants to a certain extent the like actual on-site hours may be reduced depending on the specialty and if they're on call it's usually telephonic from home and if it's if you you have a very experienced registrar who knows how to do his stuff or her stuff they you're probably not going to be called at all so yeah that's my thoughts so obviously we've identified a problem but do you think that there's any way around it there are ways around it but the ways around it i think become less less worthwhile or less covetable because i think in my in, in my personal experience i think the best way to solve how much people do or don't sleep or how many patients you can or can't get through i think for the most part it's a numbers game so the more people that are on call the more likely you are to get more sleep but i mean apart from maybe doing casualty 12 hour shifts if you're talking about the more people that are on call then you're talking about people maybe doubling the amount of overtime hours that they do because they have to be there to cover and turn it into shift work basically yeah that's also a thing it can either be increasing the amount of people on call and then staggering the sort of call to be like i'll do this first 8 hours you do the next and vice versa or like shortening the shifts but that would increase the frequency of shifts and i think some people may be of the opinion i'll rather just take one big hit now and then i'm not going to be on call for another week or so versus i'm going to take a hit now but it's a bit shorter and i get to sleep but then in 2 days 3 days time i'm on again kind of vibe. back yeah that is true i am definitely i think i'm one of those people that would like just want to take their hit once instead of taking it more frequently yeah and then it's also the thing of handovers obviously if you're having more shifts like more shorter shifts more handovers required so like continuity of care and stuff like that and sometimes things get lost you know if you're not the one who really knows the patient very well from the beginning so that's something that's yeah that's been brought up in general there's resistance from the old god so to speak um of medicine so your older consultants and there's a few um arguments that they bring up and that's obviously that back in their day we had to be at the hospital every second day on call or we didn't get any sleep or whatever and it's just basically that macho culture the terror culture that people don't want to put to bed as governing why practices haven't changed then the big one that is a valid argument and which has actually been said to be more of a problem is the lack of continuity of care if you think back to yourself handing over a patient to a colleague if it's time to go home that can also change like how well you do it versus if it's a formal round where you're handing over there's also been as a conception that perception sorry there's a perception that there's decreased opportunities to learn and this goes back to what i was speaking about earlier on with your circadian rhythm and that governs your hormonal patterns if you think about your core let's say you're doing an obstetrics core or pediatrics core specifically when does most of the action take place it's going to be the early hours of of the morning if you ask most people when they're born very few people say they're born around 2 p.m. and that's all to do with hormones and what not cortisol so if you're not on call or you have decreased calls then there's decreased opportunities to learn but is that reason enough to put yourself and your body through all of that not just yourself but also your patient as well yeah no i think it's a it's a tough one because that is i don't know whether it's murphy's law or just the way of the world but i mean generally things tend to go down and to happen when there are fewer people at work and that's obviously going to be after hours so it's really a thing of how do we combat this thing like if also was saying it's either 
we have more frequent shifts or we take the one swell, you know, the one big hoop, the one big hit. I don't know whether it's something that we get indoctrinated to or something with that we just don't know anything different. Because when mm. I think about it myself as well, as I definitely also rather take the one big hit because that means more consecutive nights in my own bed, which for me is always first prize. Exactly. I spoke to a consultant who worked at a big hospital in Johannesburg during her registrarship. And she said that the calls would start at, there'd be someone on call and then they would take over at about, I think they said 10 p.m. And basically the hospital that they're working at was not in the safest area. So now you driving up and down in the middle of the night isn't the safest thing to do. So you also have to consider how practical is it for you to have these decrease shifts. Absolutely. I mean, let's, I mean, we can even break it down. And if we, if we then accept that we're not going to have more shifts, we're not going to have more people on call. The question is how long or how much, how optimal is your functioning? If you are then nipping away for an hour of sleep here and 30 minutes mm. there, you know, f- four hours there, you know, that, that kind of thing. So how productive, how safe are you, whether it be safety for yourself or safety to those around you, how safe are you on that? two seconds of sleep that you get to get when you've nodded off while the anesthetist is putting the patient to sleep. Exactly. Nick, yeah. you and me are basically living in a, not a controlled experiment, but in a sense, we have an opportunity to kind of see what happens if you have more interns versus fewer interns and the arguments of continuity of care. Do you feel like having more interns has benefited you? Sorry, before we go there, can I rather yeah. say has benefited the patient? So I would say it depends. And I'm going to say it depends because for one of the rotations, pediatrics, there were physically mm-hmm. more people on call, right? So yes. what that means is that if there's an emergency that a senior, the registrar has to attend to, instead of having only two people, i.e. the reg and the intern, now you've got the reg mm-hmm. who can attend to the emergency, the one intern who can maybe go and attend Caesars if need be, and then you can have the third intern who is nearly like a sweeper mopping up the loose ends and tying up loose ends in the sense that they can assist the registrar who is busy with the emergency. They can carry out the, the, the ward work or the scheduled blood taking or whatever during the normal wards. And they can also function as that person who can help out the intern who's gone is going to be the on-call for Caesars. In that respect, I think there's certain things that will basically spell the end or be a signal of doom for your call and be like, now we are not sleeping. But I think it's a, it's a better now we are not sleeping for the patients when there is that extra hands-on intern, you know, because then they can, you have a, a focused mind, as focused as you can be on however many hours of sleep you've had, but a focused mind of, when the red says, please go and get me this, they know where to look for it. They know what they need. They can offer a different kind of experience to help. Or if the other intern is struggling with C-sections, you have another sort of brain to bounce off of. Mm. Then you get the other side of the coin, which has been my experience in internal medicine, where basically there being extra interns in inverted commas just means that we're doing physically less hours. Yes. So that has led to, instead of doing five, six, seven overnight shifts, you're doing anywhere between three to four, you know, which I must say that also sort of, it, it also affects patient care, but in a different sense. So maybe not on the overnight sleep deprived setting, but I mean, from your day to day. So you're finding that we as a group are putting together longer stretches of getting a good quality sleep overnight, a good seven to eight hours, or there's a potential to get these seven to eight hours. And mm-hmm. I think it has us coming into work. I think if I must speak personally for myself, it finds me coming into work a bit more energized and a bit yeah. more sort of willing to hang around and, you know, do the work. Not, not that I wasn't doing it properly, but there's a bit more enthusiasm to do the work mm-hmm. properly because I know that every night for the next X amount of days, I'm going to be sleeping in my own bed. And yes, I will have that one call where I may not sleep at all, but I think the, consecutive days of good sleep helps to change your attitude and your approach to patient care. Yeah. Just to add to what Nick just said, just about the importance of sleep in terms of mood, you know, 
and alertness and so that's a I think an important factor like mood and compassion and your compassion to your patients will be better because you're not cranky and grumpy because of sleep deprivation you're more empathetic you're more able to listen to their problems and actually sometimes maybe find the underlying cause for why they keep on coming back to hospital in some circumstances so i think that's another benefit of sleep in terms of mood and improvement of mood and mental health you know and i mean if you have doctors who are in a better mental state that's also better for the patients and then can i ask then nick as a follow up sorry to take over from you forsa then when you're on your calls if you drink fewer calls do you find that you are more willing to stay up for the entire call or would you still feel like you like more so in internal medicine where it's the same amount of interns on call do you like would you do you feel like you'd sleep the same amount as if if you're doing more calls or are you like okay no i have fewer calls therefore i need to stay up longer is this now specifically during the call during the call now so I, i don't know it's very tough it's very tough t- to say and be sort of level headed or fair about it but i must say from a personal point of view is i've grown to dislike not being able to sleep in my own bed and mm. then if i can't sleep in my own bed the next best thing is to sleep as much as safely possible on a call so i must say that i don't approach the call even though i have fewer calls i don't approach the call thinking to myself okay i'm more willing to stay up yeah instead i'm sort of more willing to stay up if there's a need and i'm sort of less grumpy about it because i know that i'm going to have a few more consecutive days of sleep but i think i mean i joke about it a lot of the time but i said a lot is that one of my main objectives when i'm on call is to sleep you know and mm. that could mean a hundreds of different things it could mean that fewer patients are coming in could mean that fewer patients are coming in between before a certain time it could mean that we've split the call in terms of who's responsible for what hours it means that people have left their drips in for, correctly in the ward so i i don't know i think in terms of in terms of being on call it hasn't really mended my relationship with not being in my own bed but i i think that in my opinion without having the the physical numbers there if your call is going to be a train smash you know and only numbers can help it then it doesn't matter how rested you've been for the past 7 days it's going to be a train smash mm. so if also you brought this up in your black mirror episode people should check that out if they haven't clinic what knows best and the basically the the fact that there's no replacement for experience and this is what the old dogs kind of proposes the problem with the new people newer generation trying to change things and then that is that if we are looking completely at well health um well being and in this case of getting enough sleep so that we are fresh then there's we don't get the chances that they may have previously had to learn and be exposed to all these different things and that is just by the fact that either if there's more people on call that now you don't have to be running up and down at odd hours of the night you can look at that in two ways and that's either that now you have a chance to experience a bit of stress and make a few decisions versus who's going to benefit from doing 10 trips at 2 a.m. but at the same time you don't get the exposure to all these different conditions as a surgeon you don't get to have as many operations in internal medicine you may not be able to get the experience to differentiate between what is a gastroesophageal reflux versus this is someone who's having a myocardial infarction so what do you think about that for so is it, do you think that then you have to start looking at the two and kind of offsetting if actually this improvement is actually detriment or do you think that is always going to trump the other and that rather get enough sleep and I don't know be happy but realize that you're going to have a decrease decrease training opportunities in the middle of the night the emergencies will always still be the emergencies like mm-hmm. the surgical abdomen that comes in the acute abdomen that comes in that needs immediate like theater will I'd like to believe get that surgery at 3am in the morning 
or the MI, you know, that's come in, you know, and like, if you think it's some, an MI and you need to exclude an MI, or let's say it is Gord at 3am, but then you need to exclude the MI or, you know, then you're still going to do the things properly. You're still going to go through the approach properly and go through the protocols properly and learn, in my opinion. So I think it's the thing of learning is learning. Like, I mean, if it's elective surgery, then like you just do a lot during the day. I mean, if it's um, elective procedures for surgical experience or exposure, or if it's not like super urgent or emergent, the emergent things will always be the emergent things. And I think you have to just get them done whenever they come. But now you, but you do see that you're not having the same opportunities because when you're at night, that's kind of extra training time. For example, I'll give you the example of our professor right now in orthopedics, where he'll ask the, the seniors, how many operations have you done last, like on call? And so if someone says one, then he's going to get upset because he knows that's valuable cutting time. And besides the patient not getting this, op- this um, operation done, you as a surgeon are not getting that vital experience because during the day, there's only so many operations that you can do. And now if you are adding to the fact that you're doing, before you're doing six or seven calls, now you're only doing four, then that's fewer operations. And there is that dexterity that you have to gain, that you gain with each operation. So there was a study that was actually, well, not a study, but just the notion is that if you are now saying that we're going to have fewer calls, fewer um, hours on um, working, that now you're going to have to add two years to your training to make up for that last time. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm. So it is, yes, definitely. The patient is hopefully going to get the treatment either way, but it's for you and your own training where the problem comes in. This is me just playing devil's advocate, but I do think that there is some validity to it. Yeah, that's a tricky one, especially with a a practice like surgery where the skill is very important, you know. And it's sort of a thing like if you think about like the things that are always drilled into us that shouldn't ever be an issue, even no matter how tired we are, you know. Yeah, like the dose of adrenaline in recess or, you know, those are the things that are drilled in repeatedly that no matter how tired you are, like, that skill, you know, will remain. Because, I mean, the definition of skill is essentially being able to do a particular activity under pressure. I mean, that's when you can really call it a skill, you know. Yeah. You have an ability to operate if you're just able to do an operation, but skill is also in being able to do it under pressure. Or So that's where we have to try to get that balance but then how much skin skill are you really honing when a lot of learning and memory is dependent on your brain also getting enough rest? So now what's important is that there's actually research on both ends of the spectrum. So there's evidence that supports that. For example, there's a that with an extra three hours on core, it was found that 22% more medical errors were found in medical doctors. Whereas a study done by the New England, um, that was published in the New England Medical Journal in 2015, the title of the article was The Effects of Sleep Deprivation on Surgeons and Their Patients. So this was done in Toronto, Mount Sinai Hospital. It was done looking at outcomes of 40,000 patients. So the two groups that they were comparing the one group was the physicians who were operating the night before between 12 and 7 a.m. And then the non-night core group, which were coming from not working the night before. And when they looked at the results from the two groups, they fed basically the same. So in terms of the death rates, both were 1.1%. Looking at readmissions in the non-night group, it was 6.6% versus 7.1% in the night group and complications were 18.1% and 18.2% within 30 days of surgery. So these results are not statistically significant. 
and also other studies, the results were very similar and most medical errors were not actually due to the amount of time that people were in call, but rather other things such as poor handovers, general negligence. So it was more system errors, more than, more than people being with decreased awareness due to being on call at night. I think I read a bit of that study about the surgeons, but it did mention at the end about how all of the surgeons were licensed or qualified. So in a sense, you could say they had already like gone through their trainee stage. You know, they were already very experienced and well-skilled. So Uh that could be a confounding factor in the fact that their their skills were not determined by whether or not they were tired or not because those skills have been honed in over years. Whereas it didn't say, it said none of the surgeons were, those operations were done by trainees, which you could call. Very true. But we're still saying that sleep is the fact, was the factor that we're looking at. So even if they were trainee versus non-trainee, we still, what the hypothesis of all of this is revolving around whether someone's gain has had enough sleep or not. True. But then that is linked to the like percentage of the difference in errors, which wasn't really much at all. But then I think that was accounted for by the experience of the, the surgeons, not necessarily whether or not they didn't have sleep or not. In okay. our context, unless it's a really, really tough case, and like you mm-hmm. really have to call in the consultant to come and operate at night. Most overnight operations are done by the, the, reg, the registrar. Yeah. Who is still building that experience and that skill. But then that's still, if you're doing the same study, then it will be looking at the registrar during the day as well. Yeah. Because they're both not skilled. Like you're not skilled either way. Yeah. So that's why I'm saying with a more experienced surgeon the factor for lack of sleep is going to have less of an effect on the outcome of the patient in my opinion yeah so so to chime in there also i think if we if we're avoiding the whole devil's advocate thing i just think that if you consider a skilled surgeon versus a non-skilled surgeon right the skilled Mm -hmm. surgeon has had that time to make things second nature if i may put it that way so we go through med school and we go through the a six-year undertaking to make certain things second nature how to take a history how to take blood how to put signs and symptoms together it takes six years for us to do that and i think that specific study and i think what i was trying to get to is that the experienced surgeon has had that time to to make these things second nature so not that sleep doesn't play a role, but they've had a bit more time to confound these things and for these things to become, you know, after I do step one, the next most obvious step is step two. Whereas the surgeon who's still cutting his teeth, learning his trade may not be, I mean, may know that from step one, you go to step two, but, you know, might have a lapse in that maybe we go to 1.5 first instead of going to step two. So I think what Ephos is trying to say is that to a degree, the experience, specifically for the study, this, the experience of the surgeon offsets the amount of sleep that said surgeon has or hasn't had. I understand what you guys are saying, but I feel like then we are basically saying that sleep then doesn't affect certain people, which it does, and which is kind of the premise of what we're discussing here, that sleep is detrimental because when you look at um like for example the safe working hours um initiative what would not permission initiative that was being started by by judas a few years ago what they made mention of is that cool we obviously this is a problem facing junior doctors but you can't only look at junior doctors you have to look at the whole system in general so you can't have an intern going home but then a registrar staying up, even though a registrar is more experienced. In general, sleep affects everyone. Like, no sleep for anyone is a terrible thing. So, like, we can't offset the, like, the fact that we're looking primarily at sleep and not the levels of experience. 
because then they like it's it's i don't know I, we can't really control for that so here they took like you said they took the group that they were looking at was primarily was non-trained doctors so you can't really get like more control than that because then they can go into more of the specifics and be like okay how much more experience does this doctor have than that doctor and then so yeah it's a it's a slippery slope to to go down yeah i agree with you there completely um sleep definitely does affect us as doctors like in a detrimental way or lack thereof and i was just kind of arguing the point of surgical outcomes can't be the only measure that we use and i think in this case the surgical outcomes which is really dependent on surgical skill which was what yeah. was measured as a outcome of lack or of sleep was confounded and that's just my argument by that yeah in other as okay. i think I lack of sleep is definitely detrimental and will uh, result in more mistakes and better better yeah. outcomes so then where do we go from here what is the logical step for addressing the sleep issue you know for i, I don't think that there is one easy clear obvious answer to that because there's so many variables you know so i mean like i've said previously maybe in a different setting is that i've had calls where i've slept for 6 7 hours you know um mm. but i've also had calls when i haven't slept at all you know so it's it's so tough because because things like that are variables you can't control you can't control who's coming to the hospital you can't control how many of who is coming to the hospital so it becomes so difficult to find that vanilla option that one size fits all to say that if we do this it will be best for everyone you know i must say though is that the more people that i've had even with the seniors because i've had the privilege of of calling with more than one senior at a time and even they are adamant that you know we we've, we've split and someone will be responsible from this hour to this hour and this hour to this hour so i think you could easily say that the that the that the solution is to add more shifts or add more people to the shifts but that you know then like we said previously takes away from the consecutive amount of times that people can get good quality sleep but then on the other mm. hand the remedy to that is to employ more people you know so we yeah. can just end up going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole trying to search for the best possible answer if wasn't yeah i think i agree with nick here there's no like clear cut one one size fits all answer it obviously depends on like each hospital is different each hospital sees various degrees or different degrees of um patient loads and also in terms of severity of illness and i think that also has a factor with how busy calls can get and how much sleep one can get on call we can maybe start introducing more systems in the meantime to try alleviate certain things like trying to divide the call within the people who are on call like let's say between this time and this time you definitely go sleep unless it's really hectic i'll call you kind mm-hmm. of like, like sticking to those hours and each person trying to do that for their fellow colleagues but it's very tricky and it also depends on like full buy in from all involved another option is increasing the the shifts and then shortening them but that also requires full buy in and as most of us have said here we'd rather just take the hit which is also that comes to the mindset you know how important do we want to, like you know that proper continuous quality yeah, sleep like yeah how badly do we want to sleep more on call versus mm. having fewer calls so it's all about that buy in is very important as consulting with different people i think nick you mentioned it when the other the other day when you spoke about this briefly about a certain rotation where i don't know if it's just the some um, our culture and medicine way we don't want to like leave things undone which is good but at night you do need to sleep sometimes so there'll be files piling up piling up but they're going to pile up no matter what 
and then like no one sleeps and yeah they get all these bad side effects of the lack of sleep for a situation that can't be remedied except for just keeping keeping on at it but yeah we need to also change the culture of medicine to realize that we are humans we don't all need to show that we are about physiology just to close i think i mentioned briefly the safe working hours initiative that was started a few years ago by a group in judasa they made some recommendations and it was moving away from an individual based system of care towards a team based method of care and that's basically to know that for patients they're not expecting one person to be in charge of everything and that if someone goes home post call like they should that they are still going to get their prescription renewed or someone is going to order their wheelchair the next thing was implementation of safe hours to not only junior doctors but to everyone so that we know that if an intern is leaving it can offset the balance but with the seniors while well, they also need their time to rest but there should be systems in place so that when the intern and the senior who is on call leave that there's continuity of care and that things don't just freeze hand in hand what goes with that is safe handovers so knowing being able to properly identify each patient especially problematic patients being systematic about it what you need to look out for if someone has a low potassium whether they're being if their potassium is being replaced what time it was started where exactly the patient is etc and the last thing was customized solutions to suit local circumstances and that's to show that different departments different hospitals all have different ways of doing things and like nick said you can't have a vanilla solution yeah be able to cater to each environment and find a way that works for everyone in that way any closing remarks no i think we've said it all at least from my side i'm good yeah and i think you really wrapped it up quite eloquently there even though you were playing devil's advocate for half the podcast i think you really wrapped it up and summed up the important points thank you for i no yeah i just have to play devil's advocate just so that we know that we can't all be on the same side because you guys always take the good guys approach but yeah anyway thank you for listening to this latest episode of 15 minute medicine we tried to make medicine as simple as possible please check out our other podcasts give us a like on instagram facebook subscribe on apple podcasts and yeah keep listening until next time Thank you.